Welcome to Fast Asleep. Today's problems are gone for now. You've got us. Cartoonist, humorist, journalist, playwright, author, and, well, just a witty guy. That's James Thurber. And, hey, we owe James Thurber a lot at Fast Asleep. His story, The Catbird Seat, gave us some of our highest ratings. That story is still available, so scroll back and listen. It's good. Well, when we did The Catbird Seat, we teased you then, but no longer. We've brought you in this episode two Thurber stories this time. We'll end with the unicorn in the garden. I love this one. But first, I said no more teasing, and I meant it. So tuck in for The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. We're going through. The commander's voice was like ice breaking. He wore his full dress uniform with the heavily braided white cap pulled down rakishly over one cold gray eye. We can't make it, sir. It's spoiling for a hurricane, if you ask me. I'm not asking you, Lieutenant Berg said the commander. Throw on the power lights. Rev her up to 8,500. We're going through. The pounding of the cylinders increased. To bucket, to bucket, to bucket, to bucket, to bucket. The commander stared at the ice forming on the pilot window. He walked over and twisted a row of complicated dials. Switch on number eight auxiliary, he shouted. Switch on number eight auxiliary, repeated Lieutenant Berg. Full strength in number three turret, shouted the commander. Full strength in number three turret. The crew, bending to their various tasks in the huge, hurtling, eight-engined Navy hydroplane, looked at each other and grinned. Ah, the old man'll get us through, they said to one another. The old man ain't afraid of hell. Not so fast. Oh, Oh, you're driving too fast, said Mrs. Mitty. What are you driving so fast for? Huh? Huh? said Walter Mitty. He looked at his wife in the seat beside him with shocked astonishment. She seemed grossly unfamiliar like a strange woman who had yelled at him in a crowd. You were up to 55, she said. You know, I don't like to go more than 40. 
Oh, you were up to 55. Walter Mitty drove on toward Waterbury in silence. The roaring of the SN202 through the worst storm in 20 years of Navy flying, fading in the remote, intimate airways of his mind. Oh, you're all tensed up again, said Mrs. Mitty. It's one of your days. I wish you'd let Dr. Renshaw look you over. Walter Mitty stopped the car in front of the building where his wife went to have her hair done. Remember to get those over shoes while I'm having my hair done, she said. I don't need over shoes, said Mitty. She put her mirror back into her bag. We have been all through that, she said, getting out of the car. You're not a young man any longer. He raced the engine a little. And why don't you wear your gloves? Have you lost your gloves? Walter Mitty reached in a pocket and brought out the gloves. He'd put them on, but, well, after she had turned and gone into the building and he had driven on to a red light, he took them off again. Pick it up, brother, snapped a cop as the light changed, and Mitty hastily pulled on his gloves and lurched ahead. <sighs> he drove around the streets aimlessly for a time, and then he drove past the hospital on his way to the parking lot. Oh, it's the millionaire banker Wellington McMillian, said the pretty nurse. Yes, said Walter Mitty, removing his gloves slowly. Hmm, who has the case? Oh, Dr. Renshaw and Dr. Benbow, but there are two specialists here, Dr. Remington from New York and Mr. Pritchard Mitford from London. He flew over. A door opened down a long, cool corridor, and Dr. Renshaw came out. He looked distraught and haggard. Oh, he hello, Mitty, he said. We're having the devil's own time with Macmillan, the millionaire banker and close personal friend of Roosevelt. Obstriosis of the ductal tract. Tertiary. I wish you'd take a look at him. Oh, well, glad to, said Mitty. In the operating room, there were whispered introductions. Dr. Remington, Dr. Mitty, Mr. Pritchard Mitford, Dr. Mitty. Oh, my. Well, I've read your streptothracosis, said Mr. Pritford Mitford, shaking hands. A brilliant performance, sir. Oh, well, thank you, said Walter Mitty. Didn't know you were in the States, Mitty, grumbled Remington. Coles to Newcastle? bringing Mitford and me here for a tertiary. Well, you are very kind, said Mitty. A huge, complicated machine connected to the operating table with many tubes and wires began at this moment to go 
bucked, bucked, bucked. Mm. Mm. Oh, the new anesthetizer is giving away, shouted an intern. There is no one in the East who knows how to fix it. Well, just be quiet, man, said Mitty in a cool, low voice. He sprang to the machine, which was now going he began fingering delicately a row of glistening dials. Hmm. Give me a fountain pen, he snapped. Someone handed him a fountain pen. He pulled a faulty piston out of the machine and inserted the pen in its place. Mm-hmm. That will hold for ten minutes, he said. Get on with the operation. A nurse hurried over and whispered to Renshaw, and Mitty saw the man turn pale. Coriopsis has set in, said Renshaw nervously. If you would take over, Mitty. Mitty looked at him and at the craven figure of Benbo, who drank, and at the grave, uncertain faces of the two great specialists. If you wish, he said. They slipped a white gown on him. He adjusted a mask and drew on thin gloves. Nurses handed him shining, Back up, Mac! Hey, hey! Look out for that Buick! Walter Mitty jammed on the brakes. Aw, wrong lane, Mac, said the parking lot attendant, looking at Mitty closely. Oh, gee, yeah, muttered Mitty. He began cautiously to get back to back out of the lane marked exit only. Ah, just, just leave her sit there, said the attendant. I'll put her away. Mitty got out of the car. Hey, you better leave the key. Oh, said Mitty, handing the man the ignition key. The attendant vaulted into the car, backed it up with insolent skill, and put it where it belonged. Aw, you're so damn cocky, thought Mitty, walking along Main Street. They think they know everything. Once, he had tried to take his chains off outside New Milford. Oh, he'd got them wound around the axles. A man had had to come out in a wrecking car and unwind them. A young, grinning garage man. Well, since then, Mrs. Mitty always made him drive to a garage to have the chains taken off. The next time, he thought, I'll wear my right arm in a sling and they won't grin at me then. <laughs> I'll have my right arm in a sling and they'll see I couldn't possibly take the chains off myself. He kicked at the slush on the sidewalk. Oh, overshoes, he said to himself. And he began looking for a shoe store. When he came out into the street again, 
with the overshoes in a box under his arm, Walter Mitty began to wonder, oh, what the other thing was that his wife had told him to get. Oh, she'd told him twice before they set out from their house for Waterbury. Oh, in a way, he hated these weekly trips to town. He was always getting something wrong. Now, uh, Kleenex, he thought. Squibs, razor blades, no. Toothpaste, toothbrush, bicarbonate, carborundum, initiative and referendum. Ah, he gave up. But she would remember it. Oh, where's the what's-its-name? She would ask. Oh, don't tell me you forgot the what's-its-name. A newsboy went by shouting something about the Waterbury trial. Perhaps this will refresh your memory. The district attorney suddenly thrust a heavy automatic at the quiet figure on the witness stand. Have you ever seen this before? Walter Mitty took the gun and examined it expertly. Why, yes, this is my Webley Vickers 5080, he said calmly. An excited buzz ran around the courtroom. The judge rapped for order. You are a crack shot with any sort of firearms, I believe, said the district attorney, insinuatingly. Objection, shouted Mitty's attorney. We have shown that the defendant could not have fired the shot we have shown that he wore his right arm in a sling on the night of the 14th of July. Walter Mitty raised his hand briefly, and the bickering attorneys were stilled. With any known make of gun, he said evenly, I could have killed Gregory Fitzhurst at three hundred feet with my left hand. Pandemonium broke loose in that courtroom. A woman's scream rose above the bedlam and suddenly a lovely dark-haired girl was in Walter Mitty's arms. The district attorney struck at her savagely without even rising from his chair, Mitty let the man have it on the point of the chin. You miserable cur. Poppy biscuit, said Walter Mitty. He stopped walking and the buildings of Waterbury rose up out of the misty courtroom and surrounded him again. A woman who was passing laughed. <laughs> he said puppy biscuit, she said to her companion. That man, Puppy Biscuit, he said that to himself. Walter Mitty hurried on. He went into an A&P, not the first one he came to, but a smaller one farther up the street. I want some biscuits for small young dogs, he said to the clerk. Mm, any special brand, sir? The greatest pistol shot in the world thought a moment. Ooh. It says puppies bark for it on the box. 
said Walter Mitty. His wife would be through at the hairdresser's in 15 minutes. Mitty saw, in looking at his watch, unless they had trouble drying it, mm, sometimes they had trouble drying it, Oh, and she didn't like to get to the hotel first. She would want him to be there waiting for her, as usual. Well, he found a big leather chair in the lobby facing a window, and he put the overshoes and the puppy biscuits on the floor beside it. He picked up an old copy of Liberty and sank down into the chair. Can Germany conquer the world through the air? Walter looked at the pictures of bombing planes and of ruined streets. The cannonading has got the wind up in young Raleigh, sir, said the sergeant. Captain Mitty looked up at him through tousled hair. Oh, get him to bed, he said. He was weary, too. With the others, I, I will fly alone. Oh! But you can't, sir, said the sergeant anxiously. It takes two men to handle that bomber, and the Archies are pounding hell out on the air. Von Richtman's circus is between here and Solier. Well, somebody's got to get that ammunition dump, said Mitty. I'm going over. Spot of brandy? He poured a drink for the sergeant and one for himself. War thundered and whined around the dugout and battered at the door. There was a rending of wood and splinters flew through the room. Hmm, a bit of a near thing, said Captain Mitty, carelessly. The box barrage is closing in. Oh, yes, sir, said the sergeant. Well, we only live once, sergeant, said Mitty with his faint fleeting smile, or do we? He poured another brandy and tossed it off. I've never seen a man that could hold his brandy like you, sir, said the sergeant. I mean, begging your pardon, sir. Captain Mitty stood up and strapped on his huge Webley Vickers automatic. It's Forty kilometers through hell, sir,' said the sergeant. Mitty finished one last brandy. "'After all,' he said softly, "'what isn't?' The pounding of the cannon increased. There was a rat-tat-tatting of machine guns, and from somewhere came the menacing pocket-pocket-pocket of the new flamethrowers. Walter Mitty walked to the door of the dugout, humming, Oh, Freda, ma blonde. He turned and waved to the sergeant. Cheerio, he said. Something struck his shoulder. I've been looking all over this hotel for you, said Mrs. Mitty. Why do you have to hide in this old chair? How do you expect me to find you? Uh, things close in, said Walter Mitty, vaguely. What? Mrs. Mitty said. Oh, did you get the what's-its-name, the puppy biscuits? And what's in that box? 
overshoes, said Mitty. Well, couldn't you have put them on in the store? I was thinking, said Walter Mitty. Does it ever occur to you that I am sometimes thinking? She just looked at him. I'm going to take your temperature when I get you home, she said. They went out through the revolving doors that made a faintly derisive whistling sound when you pushed them. It was two blocks to the parking lot. At the drugstore on the corner, she said, You, wait here for me. I forgot something. I won't be a minute. She was more than a minute. Walter Mitty lighted a cigarette. It began to rain. Rain with sleet in it. He stood up against the wall of the drugstore, smoking. He put his shoulders back and his heels together. Mmm, to hell with the handkerchief, said Walter Mitty scornfully. He took one last drag on his cigarette and snapped it away. And then, with that faint, fleeting smile playing about his lips, he faced the firing squad, erect and motionless, proud and disdainful. Walter Mitty, the undefeated, inscrutable to the last. And now, tuck in a little deeper for the unicorn in the garden. Once upon a sunny morning, a man who sat in a breakfast nook looked up from his scrambled eggs to see a white unicorn with a golden horn quietly cropping the roses in the garden. Well, the man went up to the bedroom where his wife was still asleep and woke her. There's a unicorn in the garden, he said, eating roses. She opened one unfriendly eye and looked at him. The unicorn is a mythical beast, she said, and turned her back on him. The man walked slowly downstairs and out into the garden. The unicorn was still there. He was now browsing among the tulips. Here, unicorn, said the man, and pulled up a lily and gave it to him. The unicorn ate it gravely with a high heart because there was a unicorn in the garden. The man went upstairs and roused his wife again. The unicorn, he said, ate a lily. His wife sat up in bed and looked at him coldly. You are a booby, she said. 
and I am going to have you put in a booby hatch. The man, who never liked the words booby and booby hatch, and who liked them even less on a shining morning when there was a unicorn in the garden, thought for a moment. We'll see about that, he said. He walked over to the door. He has a golden horn in the middle of his forehead, he told her. And then he went back to the garden to watch the unicorn. But the unicorn had gone away. The man sat among the roses and went to sleep. And as soon as the husband had gone out of the house, the wife got up and dressed as fast as she could. Ooh, she was very excited, and there was a gloat in her eye. She telephoned the police, and she telephoned the psychiatrist. She told them to hurry to her house and bring a straight jacket. Then the police and the psychiatrist looked at her with great interest. My husband, she said, saw a unicorn this morning. The police looked at the psychiatrist and the psychiatrist looked at the police. He told me it ate a lily, she said. The psychiatrist looked at the police and the police looked at the psychiatrist. He told me it had a golden horn in the middle of its forehead, she said. At a solemn signal from the psychiatrist, the police and the psychiatrist leaped from their chairs and seized the wife. Oh, they, they had a hard time subduing her, for she put up a terrific struggle. But they finally subdued her, and just as they got her into the straitjacket, the husband came back into the house. Did, did you tell your wife you saw a unicorn? Asked the police. Horse not, said the husband. The unicorn is a mythical beast. That's all I wanted to know, said the psychiatrist. Take her away. Hey, uh, I'm sorry, sir, but your wife is as crazy as a jaybird. So they took her away, cursing and screaming and shut her up in an institution. The husband lived happily ever after. Moral, don't count your boobies until they are happy.
ってない